Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Joseph Leveld about his new book, His Final Battle, The Last Months of Franklin Roosevelt. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Well, I've written four books, but I've mostly been a newspaper man, during my writing life, uh, and I spent my whole newspaper career on the New York Times, uh, starting out after a couple of years as a foreign correspondent, going back and forth to various foreign assignments, uh, and one of them became the subject of my first book, uh, which was called Move Your Shadow, and that was about apartheid in South Africa, appeared in the 80s, uh, and did quite well. Anyone remembers that far back. Uh, I, I then went, subsequently, a few years after that, became an editor, was sequentially the foreign editor, managing editor, and finally the executive editor of the Times. And uh, I retired in 2001, uh, just days before September 11th, with, with a, a extraordinarily bad timing on my part, but... I didn't see what was coming, of course, mm-hmm. and and, uh, and have been working more more or less as a as a freelance writer ever since. I write with some frequency for the New York Review of Books. Uh, I did a bunch of magazine articles for the New York Times Magazine early on, and uh, but I mainly concentrated on books. The first was a book called Omaha Blues on my family in a time of crisis in childhood during World War II. Uh, the second was a, a, a book that derived from my experiences as, in some ways as a correspondent in South Africa and India. I lived in both countries. And that was a, a, a book called Great Soul, which was uh, subtitled Mahatma Gandhi and his struggle with uh, India. Not for India, but with India, and, and uh, tried to look into Gandhi's career as a leader of the great independence movement uh, uh, through the prism of, of how South, his 20 years in South Africa shaped his character and his his map, his whole his whole concept of his role, uh, and finally the Roosevelt book, uh, which. Uh, and, if you ask me how I got into that, uh, I don't have a, a really good answer. But <laughs> it, it is interesting, though, how uh, you integrate into the story of Roosevelt's uh, last uh, year and a half or so of life his uh, foreign policy vision and what he intended. I was wondering if you could start us off, perhaps, by explaining what. Uh, 
Franklin Roosevelt was doing in 1943 uh, with the meeting at Tehran that you opened up with, and and, and what was uh, his, what was his focus as president during this time? Well, I opened with Tehran for for several reasons. One is that uh, I I see my book as a corrective of a lot of Roosevelt biographies covering this period, some quite brilliantly and competently, but but in general they tend to see him as a receding, ailing figure. Uh, the fact is Roosevelt was in, in unusually good health for him considering all his disabilities. Uh, when he went to Tehran and when he returned, everybody commented on how well he looked. Uh, so it, it, for me, it's, uh, from a medical point of view, it's, it's a marker for the starting point on, on his subsequent, uh, uh, medical decline, uh, and, and an attempt to make the point that he wasn't sinking all through the war. Uh, the Roosevelt who came back from Tehran was the, was the Roosevelt who went there. Uh, and so that's one reason. The second reason is that it was a major goal of the president to meet Stalin. Uh, Roosevelt had a lot of confidence in his own ability to persuade and charm and, and thereby influence events. And he thought that America's relationship with the Soviet Union was going to be critical after the war. He thought that even before the December 7th, 41, when, when our involvement in the war formally began, um, he, he, he had sent, already sent Harry Hopkins, his key advisor and something of a confidant to, uh, to Moscow, uh, the, the, I think it was the previous, the previous summer, and he, he, he had, he had warned, uh, Churchill in a, in a letter that he thought he could handle Roosevelt better than the British Foreign Office or the American State Department. So he saw that as a role for himself. Exactly what he thought he could do is, is something that takes a lot of thinking and exploration, but, but, uh, but, and that took me and takes me in the book back to World War One when he was a second tier official in the Woodrow Wilson administration and was ultimately quite critical of Wilson's handling of the peace. So uh, so he, he saw himself as not making the mistakes Wilson made. And, um, and that, that getting in with, getting a, a handle on church, on Stalin and seeing what was possible was, was a goal of his for, for a couple of years before he went to Tehran, right through the early stages of the war. They corresponded on it. Stalin was hard to pin down, uh, but finally he agreed and insisted that Tehran be the destination. Not a very comfortable one for the president, for whom it involved a, a long sea voyage uh, across the Atlantic into the Mediterranean, then a difficult flight by propeller planes that were not in the era of jet transport uh, into, into Iran, and... Uh, uh, all that in reverse. 
hard to imagine now. Presidents could go away for 10, 12 days. Uh, Roosevelt, on a couple of occasions, in his summits with Stalin and Churchill, uh, was gone from the United States for virtually a month. Uh, that that concept of travel really does loom large in your book. You 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 uh, reference that for this period of Roosevelt's life from the summer of 1943 up until the end of his life, he's spending more time outside of Washington, D.C. in the White House than he is in it. Not even a close call. He's spending about one-third of his time in, in, in the White House. And because of what were deemed to be national security concerns, the whereabouts of the president was thought, were thought to be... Uh, off the record, a state, a state secret. So he could be gone from Washington for 10 days, and members of the cabinet and, uh, and, and the Congress and the public at large would have no idea where he was. I found that that was one of the things I found fascinating about, uh, 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 that lured me into writing about him in this period. It's also interesting, the other uh, point about his travel that you make is just how uncomfortable it could be for him. Not just the plane flights, but you describe when he's traveling aboard the a presidential rail car, the Ferdinand Magellan, how uncomfortable that could be. The only time he seemed to really be comfortable when he was traveling when he was when he was doing so by sea. And yet that was a fairly uh, infrequent circumstance, given that he was having to rely upon flight. And then when he was you know, crisscrossing the country, he was typically doing so by train. Well, I think he loved the train travel uh, on the Ferdinand Magellan. He he was uncomfortable in the bed, and he asked that the train go slower at night uh, so as not to uh, jostle him too much uh, because he couldn't brace himself with his pretty useless legs. Uh, but uh, but uh, he loved he could he loved he uh, on a number of occasions. He, he took cross-country trips by train and, uh, and loved riding in the comfortable, what you could call, stateroom or living room of the, uh, of, of the presidential car, which, which had been elaborately um, uh, re- renovated for, for his use in the war. And, and uh, now, by the way, on, on view, it's something called the Gold Coast Railway Museum, outside the zoo in Miami. What's a visitor <laughs> down there? Uh, you mentioned that the example of Wilson as uh, president during the First World War loomed large for Franklin Roosevelt in the second one. And you mentioned the, the negative example of the mistakes Wilson made, but there was another aspect that you referenced as well, which is how Roosevelt perceived of Wilson as being, in many respects, his own Secretary of State. And you find that you, you, you uh, make the point that Franklin Roosevelt performed the very same role during this period as well. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon his foreign policy vision, not just with regard to uh, the Soviet Union, but his broader vision involving the United Nations and involving America's place in the world after uh, Germany and Japan had been defeated. Well, in, in some respects, Roosevelt is the author of the uh, of the role in the world we adopted after the war as a leader of the so-called free world and as and as the country most responsible for maintaining stability and peace internationally. Uh, 
we even to this day uh, with an administration that that uh, has little regard for these values, uh, we pay about a, a third of the cost of international peacekeeping operations, even when they're undertaken by other countries through the United Nations, and we we uh, sustain a lot of such efforts. Uh, uh, it, it's it's been a it's been a part of our thinking for considerably more than half a century. Uh, Roosevelt's Roosevelt uh, uh, vision. In, I mean, he, he couldn't read the future, of course, but it, he came. He did a better job of anticipating it than than other leaders of the period. He. He, he he really uh, thought that the colonial era should be over, and and if he had had his way, France would not have recovered Indochina after the war, and and Britain would have lost most of its colonies. But of course, that was not Winston Churchill's point of view, and and they, Roosevelt realized that it was useless to argue with Churchill about that. Confide in Stalin that he that he thought, for instance, that uh, Indochina should never go back to the French and that Hong Kong should be a, a, a UN t- territory hmm. after it was recovered from the Japanese. So, but that 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 wasn't didn't become the case on an operational basis because mainly because Roosevelt died, but. That was that was his his inclination. No, he was very so. He was preoccupied not just with winning with the war, but with the world that would emerge from from the war. Does this play a role in his decision to run for another term as president in 1944? I think absolutely. If you first of all, there are a number of. It's very hard to read Roosevelt's mind on issues that sensitive and personal, because he he he, he was a he was a very complicated character. He he was he, his goals were noble and honorable, but he was very duplicitous in his tactics, seeking his goals. He did not confide in in in. Uh, Uh, as you mentioned, the Secretary of State often had no idea what Roosevelt was doing in foreign policy, didn't even necessarily remember to show the Secretary of State uh, uh, his correspondence with Stalin and Churchill. He, 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 he didn't take the Secretary of State, Cordell Hull, our longest-serving Secretary of State, to Tehran. Uh, in fact, he only had one person from this in a, in a delegation of about 70 people. He had only one person from the State Department, and that was his interpreter and future advisor, uh, Chip Boland. But uh, he operated largely on his own on his own uh, instincts and intuitions, and, and uh, in, in this area. To run. Yes. Well, the, the, so, so now when we talk about the decision to run, first of all, it's very important, I think, to remember that he came back from Tehran feeling that he had accomplished something there. It was very important for the future of the world and that, 
and 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 he was in in, in good health. Uh, and at about that time, the idea set in in the leadership of the Democratic Party that uh, that there was no alternative to to Roosevelt. There was no alternative to Roosevelt for, because every poll, and there were polls in those days, indicated that he clearly indicated that he was the only Democrat with a chance of winning the election. Uh, and the election would turn on what on, on the final stages of the war. If the war had ended by the time of the election, it was generally felt even Roosevelt could be defeated, just the way Winston Churchill ultimately was defeated at the end of the war. People wanted new leadership for a new era of peace. But if... Uh, but if the war was still continuing, then then it was felt that that Roosevelt would almost surely win, and and um, so that was one consideration, as he as he would put it to himself. There there were there was basically only one Republican who Roosevelt could see as a successor when he thought about this, and that was Wendell Wilkie, the man he defeated in 1940. But Wilkie uh, was trounced in the first Republican primary in Wisconsin in April of '45. So, so th- there were very clear political implications of any decision Roosevelt took it, to run or not to run. And and then he he was so engaged with with the higher foreign policy goals. Uh, that he, he, that wasn't something he could easily see himself passing along to, to a successor. So I think it's a very important part of the reason, reason he ran. The final thing to be said about that, all that is that Franklin Roosevelt, uh, always never took a decision until he felt he had to. And he tried to leave his options open. So he always considered that if the war in Europe Ended before, uh, in time before the Democratic Convention in '44, that he might be able to resign. But of course, the war in Europe didn't end by then, and and uh, not not resign, but he might be able to stand down as a candidate. And and uh, and subsequently, he thought he thought that resignation would be an option in his fourth term if it got to a point where he felt. Un- that he was not so vitally needed, but it's not clear that Franklin Roosevelt would ever get to the point of feeling he was not so vitally needed. You set those considerations about uh, Roosevelt's uh, necessity for the Democrats and his desire to pursue a his foreign policy vision against his uh, medical. Uh, uh, status and one of the things you do throughout the book is you reference where he is in terms of his physical condition, and while as you mentioned at the beginning, he is not decrepit and, and, and collapsing, his health is definitely not very good. I was wondering if you could elaborate what that health was, how 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 healthy he was that uh, in that period where he's making his decision in early 1944, and how he appeared to his contemporaries and to his doctors? Well, first of all, he, he didn't make his decision in early 1944. <clears throat> he allowed others to assume that he would be running, but he didn't, he didn't acknowledge any decision, even in the 
smallest circle, inner circle of his administration, that he would be running for president until uh, until a couple of weeks before the Democratic con- convention that would nominate him. It's important to remember about this period that although the war was now in we were, was now in its fourth or fifth year of counting by Europe, the European calendar and in its second or third year counting by our calendar, we had not yet committed major forces to battle in Europe. Uh, D-Day wasn't until June of 1944, and, and we're talking now about early 44. So seeing, seeing uh, the country through D-Day, the largest amphibious operation and battle of its kind in history, uh, was something he felt he clearly had to do. That, well, in the, in the beginning, for the first couple, for the first several weeks after he returned from Tehran, it was fine. Everybody was worried about Churchill. Then Churchill had pneumonia and was in, and, and his life was deemed to be in danger. He was, he was, he was in North Africa. Um, but, uh, but then Roosevelt came down with bronchitis, or what's described as the flu, and he was coughing, and he, nobody, no, few people realized that he was sick because presidents in the pre-television era, presidents didn't appear all that often in public necessarily. Uh, but uh, but the, the White House press corps became aware that he was his health was becoming a question, and he kept going up to Hyde Park to to rest and recuperate. Uh, even though the country at large didn't know he was in High Pine Park resting and recuperating, uh, uh, the White House press corps knew that. And, and, uh, and so the, the, a question mark about his health, uh, uh, I would say, emerged fairly clearly by the end of February, early March 1944. And, and finally, he, he was examined by the White House physician was a, was a ear, nose, and throat man, not a cardiologist. He, but he called in the Navy's top cardiologist, a New York, New York uh, doctor named Howard Bruin, uh, to, to uh, examine Roosevelt at the end of March 44. And... Bruin found him in shocking condition. He, by then, was in a state of congestive heart failure, and his heart was very enlarged, and, and he, he, his his breathing was uh, was in fairly shaky shape. He he was he got out of breath just being examined on the examining table at at the Bethesda Naval Hospital. Not out of breath from walking because Roosevelt didn't walk, but uh, but so and and they brought in a small council of prominent doctors to examine Roosevelt and decide on the course of treatment. Uh, the truth is there was very little today. Rose, the condition Roosevelt was in then could be treated fairly easily, and he could have been assured of another ten or fifteen years of life, but. Uh, we have things like uh, 
angioplasties and stents and uh, all sorts of beta blockers, all sorts of medical treatments for heart patients uh, that didn't exist in that era. And, and, and basically what they had for someone in Roosevelt's condition was a uh, derivative from a plant called foxglove plant called, called, I think it's digitalis. And, and, and the, there was some skepticism when Bruin said that the president needed to be treated with this drug because it had possible downside, but, uh, but, but he was the only cardiologist in, you know, in the discussion. And, and when he laid out the, the facts of his examination, it, it was agreed to. And, and, uh, and how, you know, th then you get to the question of how much Roosevelt himself knew. I think it's pretty clear that he, he had a, he, although he didn't understand the medical technicalities, he, he knew that he was being treated by a cardiologist. He knew that, uh, and he, he, they prescribed a whole new, uh, diet for him, uh, tried hard to limit his smoking. He went from smoking a, over a pack a day of camel cigarettes to five or six a day. They couldn't get him to cut it out completely, but he, he cut back significantly. The key thing was they wanted him to rest a lot. And in fact, he accepted the uh, requirement that he rest a lot and, and, and was spending nearly half as much time on... on, on on going to the office in the White House as he had uh, just months earlier. This, none of this was publicly known or, or recognized, but, but he, he, he limited his activity to a considerable degree. You mentioned, though, that a lot of the people closest to him were at least cognizant of a possibility that he might not survive for much longer. And that brings up the question of the presidential succession. I was wondering if you could explain a bit who the vice president was in 1944 and why it was that he was not renominated for a second term when Roosevelt himself decided to uh, run, run again. Well, it was assumed all along that Roosevelt would run again by, by the people who were in on this. Uh, but Roosevelt himself had not uh, had, had not signaled that he would. Uh, the vice president was a man named Henry Wallace, uh, an, an, an agronomist from Iowa, who had been brought in as Secretary of Agriculture. His father had been Secretary of Agriculture in, I think, the Hoover administration. He, he had, had, was a, a very uh, successful and well-to-do plant breeder. And, uh, um, and he, he, he didn't become a Democrat until, I think, 1936 or so. And, and uh, he, he, however, Roosevelt had to push him through the 1940 convention by, by basically telling the party that He'd, after he'd already been nominated himself, that he wouldn't run. He'd stand down if they didn't nominate Wallace. 
Wallace, he thought, was at that point thought was the truest New Dealer in his administration who could conceivably be nominated. Uh, and, and, but by 1944, he had come to have a lot of misgivings about Wallace, uh, about his thinking, about his political skills. And I think there's, a, there's, a, I try to build a case in the book that Roosevelt himself was, the general interpretation is that the party soured on Wallace and Roosevelt felt he had to dump it, compelled to dump him. I think, I think it's also true that Roosevelt had soured on Wallace and who had become a kind of, uh, spokesman for the president in, in wartime, but of a, of a, of a very uh, vague and airy sort that uh, that made him an object of ridicule in some in some circles. Claire Booth Luce, the the wife of the, the Time publisher uh, and herself a congresswoman, referred to Wallace's wartime speeches as globaloney. <laughs> But he, 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 he was, uh, he, he, he was an able man, but with, with strange, um, enthusiasms. One was for a, uh, a Russian, uh, plant breeder and mystic and painter, uh, who, who Wallace at one point nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, but who later turned out to have been, been brought up on on tax evasion charges in the United States. And all of this was known to the Republicans and not used by them in 1940, but, but, uh, but seemed to be a liability that, that Roosevelt was aware of. And, and Roosevelt was kind of, kind of underwhelmed by his his performance as vice president. In those days, a vice president didn't have to do very much except hang out at, Capitol, on the, at the Capitol and preside over Congress at times. But but uh, he was supposed to be a, an effective vice president, if that wasn't a contradiction in terms, in this rather empty office, uh, was assumed to be able to marshal his party and support for the president's programs in in the Senate. And, and Wallace had very little effective dealings with senators in that period. And, uh, and Roosevelt, I think, I think I cite a series of ways in which Roosevelt just lost faith in him. But uh, Roosevelt being Roosevelt never said that to anybody. He just he just sort of marginalized uh, Henry Wallace, most most ama- and and misled him as to what was going on, most amazingly by uh, by sending him off to Siberia for 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 a visit of more than a month <laughs> in the period leading up to the uh, to the convention where where uh, a candidate he who you would want on the ticket might be doing some useful politicking at home. That, of course, then raises the question of who would succeed Wallace. 
And how was this uh, ultimately resolved? And who was in the uh, who was contending for uh, Walt to succeed Wallace? Well, there were a half dozen people who wanted to, of course, or probably more, but who were on up for discussion. But the 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 most uh, respected choice at that moment was. James Burns, who was sometimes who was running basically the domestic policy side of the White House, and was sometimes referred to as the assistant president. He was a former he was a former senator from South Carolina, and a former Supreme Court justice, who with a lot of uh, political clout in in in, in Washington, and, and respected for his his. Uh, his abilities to work the government. Uh, Roosevelt would have been satisfied with Burns, except that Burns was a South Carolina segregationist, and and the black vote was starting to mean something in in the Democratic Party. And and Burns had taken some decisions on wages during the war that uh, aroused the opposition of the trade unions, which were then much more powerful than they are today, and and uh, they they were against him. So he he had powerful enemies. If, uh, um, and and then there was a third person, Harry Truman, a, a relatively obscure senator from Missouri who had done a good job running a Senate committee that was supposed to look into cases of corruption and and. And mismanagement in the in the huge wartime programs. Uh, so Truman was not obviously seeking the nomination. In fact, he had promised to nominate Burns. The, the mere fact that these things were being discussed within the party showed that that, that Wallace was was uh, was sinking. But in fact, Wallace's popularity because of his uh, internationalist stance uh, in support of the president, had, had, had a, a aroused a good deal of support among what we would call the liberal wing of the Democratic Party, and including Eleanor Roosevelt, and he, he had, he had uh, he, although he had been a hard sell in 1940, he, he, he now had significant strength of his own, even though he had lost the president's confidence, and and so the general's the usual interpretation is that the bosses got together and and picked picked Truman. I, I think it's quite clear that uh, that Roosevelt called the shots on all of this, and that and that the, he allowed both Burns and Wallace in conversations on the, in the same days. To believe that he was supporting them and hope they would get the nomination, he, he basically said that to each man. Uh, he never spoke directly to Harry Truman about the question, uh, and and uh, he he didn't go to the convention. Uh, he was out he was out traveling across the country in the Ferdinand Magellan. Uh, so so his hand was not obvious. He didn't obviously show his hand. In, in, in the machinations that went on, but if you follow them, 
it, it's clear that he 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 leaned to Burns, and then when they decided that Burns was too hard to sell, uh, uh, switched to Truman, whom he hardly knew. So Truman is nominated alongside Roosevelt, and now you have the campaign itself. And he's facing his uh, he, he's facing his fourth Republican opponent, uh, who uh, a man who had had uh, was governor of New York, Tom Dewey, who had actually uh, who was this young, vibrant prosec- former prosecutor. It, it seemed in some ways that 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 his very youth and vitality uh, might very well pose uh, you know a, a juxtaposition in terms of the health issue. Uh, even without having to mention it, how, how did Roosevelt deal with this con- these concerns that some people were raising in the press and elsewhere about his health uh, during the campaign? Well, he, he, he in two ways. First of all, although Roosevelt had had uh, had not been campaigning and had had, uh, had very limited. Uh, program of public appearances, uh, in his first campaign appearance, he, he, he pulled off an, an incredible uh, uh, note, notable speech. Uh, uh, and then we're talking about radio now, where, a speech that would have been heard by tens of millions of people. The pilot, the, the communication system was so different in those days than it is today. You know, no social media, no television. Uh, but Roosevelt had to speak to the Teamsters Union uh, in a banquet hall in, in Washington, and he, he he gave a speech that that was uh, one of the most memorable of American political appearances. He. he by by mocking the Republican Party and particularly a, a, a single congressman for for um, contending that 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 thousands of dollars have been wasted when sh- when Roosevelt lost his dog Fowler on a trip in the Pacific Ocean and they had to send another d- destroyer back to recover the the dog. Uh, all of which was not true, but some congressman had charged that. And the, the congressman, by the time this speech occurred, had already apologized for it. But Roosevelt had had his uh, had his performance already in mind, and uh, and it's worth listening to on YouTube. He 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 said, you know, it starts off with saying these republic speaking in a, his slowest, most dramatic voice, his voice sonorous as ever, uh, saying, these Republicans are not content with attacks on me or my sons or my wife are now attacking my little dog, Fowler. And he he milked that that, uh, basically bit of stat we would now call almost stand-up comedy, except that he was sitting, uh, <laughs> uh, for, for, all, for all that it was worth for about four or five minutes. Uh, 
and and uh, it showed for the first time in many months that political Franklin Roosevelt was of of yore who who had won those earlier presidential elections was still was still alive and he 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 it was the first time he took on Dewey and he did it so amazingly that that it threw Dewey off his his campaign strategy and Dewey who who was basically running a campaign that said in effect we'll do what the Democrats do but they're old and tired and and you need a, you need a new youthful administration uh, uh sort of abandoned that line and 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 went for a bitter ad hominem attack on Roosevelt. Uh, and and uh it it was effective largely with Republicans but not with independents and Democrats. It seems in that section of your book that if anything, the campaign is aiding Roosevelt's health. He seems to be getting healthier through the uh, campaign season, that it seems to be revitalizing him in a way that uh, the rest and the medical treatments had not. That's, that's clearly true. And his cardiologist was struck by the same phenomenon. Uh, in, the, in the final 10 days or so, or couple, last couple of weekends, Roosevelt campaigned vigorously uh, by, off the backs of trains and stadiums uh, before huge crowds and and uh, very very effectively, and I think if there were any doubt about the outcome of the election, it was wrapped up then. And yet, Roosevelt really didn't have much of a chance to enjoy his triumph. He then, within a matter of weeks, was once again embarking upon this grueling trip to Yalta. I was wondering if you could explain uh, what happened at Yalta, especially given how how controversial it became in retrospect. Well, Yalta, there were a number of things that needed to be resolved at Yalta. One one was the... uh, the international, any international, any agreement on an international organization, what would ultimately become the United Nations. Another was whether the Soviet Union was going, which had not yet declared war on Japan, was going to participate in the war uh, in the Pacific, in the final assault on Japan. This was before it was widely understood that that the atomic bomb might be used in Japan. Uh, and, and in fact, the existence of the atomic bomb was known only to uh, Stalin through espionage. He, Roosevelt never told him about it. Uh, so uh, the whole question of the future relations between the, the Western alliance and, and the Soviet Union, which had basically, in some respects, Turned the tide of the war before, even before D-Day, in in, in the huge battles that occurred in, uh, after the Nazi invasion of of, of, of Russia. Uh, the Soviet Union was clearly going to emerge as the strongest military force on the European continent, and so we wanted their support in in Japan in order to limit American casualties there. And uh, and 
and we wanted there's an agreement on the United Nations, and there was an issue. Poland, the question of the future of Poland became a real issue because its borders had shifted with the Nazi-Soviet pact in 39 and, 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 and were uncertain for, uh, and, and were, were, were in some question uh, at this point. And, and finally, the whole question of the borders of Germany and how Germany would be treated as a defeated uh, 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 nation and what kind of, uh, how, how it would be brought back into what's called the family of nations after the war, what would be done about war criminals and that sort of thing. All of these things needed to be discussed, and they had less than two weeks to do it. They had about ten days, and Stalin wouldn't leave uh, the Soviet Union for, for, for the discussion. So Roosevelt, despite his, by then, uh, very weak condition, agreed to to uh, sail and fly to Yalta, uh, and and. Uh, and lived there in the palace of the former czar for those 10 days and, and, and participated in every one of the meetings. Uh, and, and there's a, a, a one interpretation is that he was so weak that he was taken advantage of. But I don't think that that's not the interpretation of people who've studied Yalta most closely. The key thing about Yalta and where understandings with the Soviet Union broke down most obviously was over over Poland, and uh, and but Poland had been occupied by the Red Army uh, before Yalta even began. The whole of Poland was under under Soviet military control by that point, and and. Our forces were on the other side of Germany, just entering Western Germany. Uh, so there's no question that we were going to fight. Nobody, nobody in the world thought we could fight or compel the, the Russians to, uh, to see our point of view on Poland. So that became a very interesting diplomatic minuet between Roosevelt and Stalin. And Roosevelt didn't get what he wanted, but he got at least some appearance of agreement, and, and which enabled the Allies to announce that, that they had agreed on the future of Europe um, uh, at the end of the conference. Uh, you, you, meant, you mentioned that you, you don't think that his medical condition had any effect on his performance at the conference, but you also describe how by the time he comes back, he is definitely not as physically uh, vigorous as he once had been. How, you mentioned how when he went to speak before, con before Congress, he made actual mention of the fact that he was seated, which was not usually the case, and that he was you know, saying it on, national, uh, on the national airways, that he was being very public about the fact that he was, in effect, not feeling up to standing up even. Well, that was the first time in his long presidency that he ever referred to his, uh, I mean, it, it was known that he, he he had some disabilities as a result of his uh, 
polio, but but most people didn't understand that he was incapable of taking a single step, and and always needed to have somebody at his side or or to be or to be wearing heavy braces uh, if if he wanted to move. That he basically he basically couldn't get up in the middle of the night from his bed unassisted, and. Uh, so this was a remarkable thing. He, he spoke. He he was wheeled into the Congress, into the House of Representatives, and seated under the podium where it stood before. And and he said, "I hope you'll understand that I've just uh, taken a whatever it was, a thirteen thousand mile voyage, and I'm now and uh, and it makes it a lot easier for me to sit than to have to stand around with ten pounds of steel on the bottom of my legs. And that, that was that was the first and only reference in what would prove to be his last speech to, in Washington uh, to, uh, to his condition. So in his final weeks before his uh, death, he seemed to be resting up. I was wondering if you could explain as to what his condition was like just prior to his death and then the the circumstances of his death. Well, his his condition was what it had been for the preceding months, but he was, but the altered trip took a lot out of him, and and, and he, there were there were no medical miracles to be pulled off. I don't think. I I I I think that the, uh, a cardiologist would say that. The man in his condition in that era, with the with the medications and treatments that they that the doctors had available to him, uh, just couldn't have lived much longer. Uh, but Ro- Roosevelt needed needed ex- to be put on a on a, a regimen of rest, and and that's basically what he did for for those couple of weeks after he got back. The speech, though, to um, Congress uh, was effective. I mean, he, he he looked good and he sounded good. He he went off text uh, on a number of occasions. Seemed to have trouble following his text, but but by if you watch it on YouTube, you, you he's he 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 doesn't seem to be a dying man. But uh, but of course. After he died, many people would say, "Oh, I understood it at the time." Nobody would say it. Nobody said anything like it at the time. However, that that is a point that you make throughout your book, which is the degree to which a lot of these uh, diarists and memoirs that uh, we so often rely upon seem to have gone back and retrospectively discovered that they had far more acute assessments of Roosevelt than might have been true at the time. Right, and of course, he, his his appearance would change from day to day depending on how much rest he had, and uh, uh, you know, if, you, if somebody with a low oxygen level turns gray, grayish, and rings under the eyes become more pronounced, and and looks looks haggard. But Roosevelt could look haggard and vital in the same day, and, and people who saw him in the same period of time would come away with different impressions of how, how he was, partly because his, his voice seldom failed him and 
and his ability to engage in conversation seldom failed him. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Not much. I, I, uh, I have some thoughts that I wouldn't dare uh, acknowledge, but, uh, but I, I, haven't, I haven't launched myself into another major project, and I'm not sure I will. Okay, well, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us, Joe. I hope you have a wonderful day. Okay, thank you.